When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Trump is traveling and the stakes are high. And I'm sharing my interview with the author of our May book club pick. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Today in the Pearls, we're going to talk about the president's first international trip, bipartisan legislation on cybersecurity, and executive orders on religious liberty. In the suit, I'm sharing my interview with the author of our Bay Book Club pick. And in the heels, as always, we'll talk about what's on our minds outside of politics. Before we dive into the Pearls today, we want to do a little housekeeping. So the next couple of weeks, we're going to have quite a few guests to share with you. That is because I am going out of the country and we've tried to kind of prepare for that. We're hoping to still be able to touch space some while I'm gone, but I'm really excited about some of the interviews that we're going to share. We're going to have a book club conversation, a discussion on criminal justice reform. I interviewed um, a city councilman in Cincinnati who's been a fierce advocate for LGBT issues. So I think we have a lot of good stuff coming your way and just wanted to let you know that We'll be welcoming some guests to the Pantsuit Politics table over the next couple of weeks. And we're also still in the middle of our membership drive. We're not quite to our goal yet, and we need all the help we can get from our listeners ready to support Pantsuit Politics and all the work we do here. Not to mention, we are taping the tipsy slash drunk, I guess depends on how the evening goes, Pantsuit Politics bonus episode this Saturday. So you have till the end of this week to get your subscription or support in so that you can listen to Beth and I lose all our nuance over wine slash bourbon. It's going to be hilarious. 
is. So we really need your support. The same Pantsy Politics episodes will be here for everybody, but there's sort of the secret garden of bonus content available to you if you go to our Patreon page, which you can find by clicking become a supporter on pantsuitpoliticsshow.com or going to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash pantsuitpolitics. We really appreciate it. So President Trump is traveling. He's on his first international trip. We are recording on Sunday night and the president spoke in Saudi Arabia about kind of his vision for collaboration with the Muslim world. That might have been a generous characterization, but most people seem to think that his speech went well and met the fairly low expectations for it. He did get tired and substitute a word from the speech. Uh, he said Islamist instead of Islamic. And a White House official told reporters that he was exhausted. He later bowed out of another event and sent Ivanka in his place. This is a really ambitious schedule for anyone, especially for someone who doesn't like to travel. So it'll be kind of interesting to see what happens over the next few days. Yeah, I was reading on Twitter. There are additional reports that he continues to be tired. So obviously, as a Hillary Clinton supporter who got lectured about her stamina, it's very frustrating to see him on his first trip, whereas, you know, Barack Obama had already hit like nine countries at this point. And I understand that he is 70 years old and doesn't like to be far away from home, but maybe don't lecture your opponent on stamina. If on your first trip, you're going to start bowing out of things immediately because you're too tired. It's a little frustrating. I really hope that this trip instills a little bit of graciousness in him, which I know might be a lot to hope for, but Some of the reporting on this trip so far has been, in my opinion, pretty dumb, (laughs) but it's been pretty dumb when he's taken shots at people doing trips like this, too. And so he's getting a taste of what he's dished out before. He criticized Michelle Obama for not wearing a headscarf. Melania and Ivanka didn't either. Now, I am full on you do you on that. Right. And so I have no problem whatsoever. I do not think women are props. And I think it is fine to make the decision not to wear a headscarf. I don't think that's worth a bunch of reporting, but like he sets everything up this way for the comparison. You also can't blame him to go in for his Twitter feed and finding all these hypocrisies either. Right, right. I mean, what you know, so it's just the frustrating thing for me about it is that there are so many legitimate areas of reporting to do about the Trump administration right now that when you spend headlines on kind of frivolous things like this, I think it reinvigorates the people who don't believe any of the serious content. Yeah. I mean, but, like, I think maybe there's no he pleasing got, them anyway. I, I think it's lame. He ate steak, too. But don't talk about it so much. Well, exactly. Like, OK, that you know, there's steak and ketchup available, but let's not make that an international incident. Well, and the other what hypocrisy I, that really bothers me is I heard a lot, a whole lot as a feminist about how how could I possibly support Hillary Clinton when she took money from the Clinton when the Clinton Foundation took money from Saudi Arabia with their awful human rights abuses towards women? Meanwhile, he's rolling into Saudi Arabia first. They're giving a hundred million dollars to Ivanka's Women for Work Foundation or whatever. But that's fine. That's not hypocritical at all after spending so much time criticizing her for taking money through the Clinton Foundation from Saudi Arabia. It's really, really frustrating. Well, I think a a focus of this trip that is worth a great deal of reporting is this joint strategic vision that we have just apparently entered into with Saudi Arabia. There's $110 billion in American arms sales as part of this and some other investments that Trump is touting as investments that will lead to job creation. There's a letter of intent from the United States to support Saudi Arabia's defense needs with ships, tanks, and other vehicles, including THAAD missile defense systems. How do you feel about this, Sarah? Because I don't feel good about it. And this, I should say, this isn't like Trump dreamed this up in his first hundred days of office. This has been being worked on for some period of time and is coming to fruition now. Um, I don't feel comfortable in any military situation in which we are selling weapons to Saudi Arabia and sort of share, trusting that we have a shared strategic vision. I understand that the ally relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States is important, but it's also complicated. And that kingdom is 
um, anything but sort of a model global citizen. So it's problematic. I think it's problematic, too. You know, the Obama administration sold about $115 billion in weapons to Saudi Arabia during his eight years as president, but had slowed military cooperation because of Saudi Arabia's conduct in Yemen. This deal kind of puts all of the old agreements back on track and expands them. And I just don't have a a trust level with Saudi Arabia, one, and two, like, haven't we just done enough in terms of infusing the Middle East with weapons? Mm-hmm. There has to be a better way. Yeah. Right. I just we're doing the same things over and over again. And and that's not a criticism of this president. That's a criticism of U.S. policy for decades. Well, and I also um, don't understand the speech where you stand up and you say America is not going to solve your problems for you. We're not going to bomb out your enemies, but we'll totally sell you the bombs for that. Like, right. I mean, What? <laughs> So the thing that is a criticism of this president and this administration for me in connection with this deal is how much it just kind of smells bad to have Mm -hmm. so many relationships tied in. And and I'm not going to pretend that this has never happened before, but there's a, a Blackstone executive who is close to the president and part of the White House's Economic Advisory Council of CEOs. And Blackstone is a private equity firm that announced a $40 billion infrastructure fund in connection with the Saudi partnership. Lockheed Martin is involved. Um, Exxon has been praised quite a bit. And Rex Tillerson has actually found his way to speak to reporters about all of this. Mm. It just... It doesn't feel like draining the swamp to me. It also doesn't feel like America first to me. I'm just mm-hmm. confused. I'm confused about where this fits in with sort of Trump policies. Because I think Trump policies, um, while not explicit, are about benefiting the rich and are about benefiting people and giving access to people, um, particularly corporate donors. I mean, I still am enraged by the reporting about the inauguration and how many people gave money and then, oh, how convenient that the regulations that were affecting their industry suddenly disappeared. The president received a royal welcome in Saudi Arabia. He goes to Israel next. He then goes to the Vatican, uh, Rome and Brussels and Sicily. And he ends in Sicily, I think, and comes home from there on the 27th. So we'll see how the rest of this trip goes. It is a, it is a long time to be overseas for any president. And I think particularly for this one. So it'll be interesting to watch things unfold over the next week. Yeah. I mean, what's the over under on that? He calls it short. I mean, I feel like I that could happen. That could happen. Yeah. I think that could happen. I feel like he for could a lot like, of different done, reasons. Yeah. I mean, this is not only the longest time he's been at, at the first time he's been out of the country. This is like the longest time he's been away from Mar-a-Lago. Can we talk about something that's working in Washington, D.C.? Oh, my God. Yes. A bipartisan group of senators have introduced the Patch Act, which stands for Protecting Our Ability to Counter Hacking. Good job, senators. So you like that acronym. You're okay with that one? You feel like that's concise and good and not reaching? You know what? I'm not into acronyms ever, but I am into bipartisan legislation and (laughs) people paying attention to technology issues. Particularly cybersecurity. Yeah, so we should say these senators' names because they've done something good. So it's Brian Schatz, I hope I'm saying that correctly, from Hawaii, Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, Corey Gardner of Colorado, Ted Lieu of California, uh, Blake Farenhold of Texas. So that's a good group of people. It's really nice to see Ted Lieu in there because he is so critical of Republicans in such a kind of tech savvy social media way that for him to reach across the aisle and work on this, I think is terrific. Yeah, this is great. And I I was actually thinking the other day, like, should we do a show on really important things that, that the government should work on while we're all ignoring everything and paying attention to Trump and cybersecurity was definitely one of them. So that makes me feel a little bit better. This legislation sets up a board chaired by the Department of Homeland Security to assess security flaws that have been found in code and hardware and decide when and how to alert manufacturers to those bugs so that they can be fixed for everyone. It was difficult for me to find a lot of information on this outside of tech blogs, but what I read in that space, which I do not pretend to understand, 
it seemed to be universally welcomed legislation. So I'm excited to see where this goes. And so this was two, this was both party, both uh, houses of government too, not just senators. Right. That's awesome. So bipartisan and bicameral. Ooh. More of that, please. Yeah. Agreed. So before we conclude the pearls, I've just been wanting to talk about this for a while, not because it has much impact, but because I think it creates all these interesting questions The president signed an executive order on religious liberty that instructed the IRS to take it easy on churches who have engaged in political activity. Now, churches have always been able to talk about issues, but there is a rule called the Johnson Amendment that says that if a church expressly endorses a political candidate, the church can lose its tax exempt status. That's only been enforced like one time ever. So again, this is kind of a, as Slate put it, it's a non-solution to a non-problem mm. because the executive order doesn't really change the Johnson Amendment. It's still the law of the land. It was more of a symbolic executive order. But I think this is a really interesting set of issues. I've thought for a long time, you know, should churches have tax exempt status? Should anyone have a tax exempt status? Mm. You know, and, and what, what are our goals in restricting political speech? So I don't know if you have any thoughts about this, Sarah, but I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. Well, I heard a really good episode when, um, Tracy and Heaven from another round were on call your girlfriend and this is this going somewhere. I don't know. That's not probably the first list you expected me to talk about with the Johnson amendment, but they had a conversation. I think it was about. The Pope, maybe. I don't know, but it started, they started discussing the Johnson Amendment. And, um, you know, they just made the point that, like, if you, we don't have a problem with churches being political. We all know churches are political. I don't think, like, this sort of, this sort of false narrative where we're all pretending like nobody endorses anybody from the pew or anything is fine, but we all know that happens. Then just pay taxes. And just pay taxes. That's fine. Just you need to pay taxes. And I think that especially when you have, you know, these like super ministers with private jets and, you know, gold Cadillacs and I'm looking at you, Joel Olstein. like, come on, like you are profiting from this. And I don't really think that's what when we set up taxes and status for churches is like private jets is definitely not what we had in mind. So I think there's a lot of um, factors in that. And I I also think it is playing into the narrative of Christians being persecuted in this country. And so I think this whole religious liberty thing, like we can't um, we can't have our own religious beliefs and we can't have our own political beliefs and that we're just being stifled and silenced. And it sort of plays to that whole narrative, too. And. You know, I think that signing this executive order was just total um, play to the base. Like you said, it's a non-solution to a non-problem. But I do think we have a problem there. Like we have something we need to have to talk about as a society, about what we really want from our religious leaders and how much we want those institutions involved in politics. It's tricky because I think my answer becomes, let's not have any tax-exempt organizations. Mm -hmm. And just let people do their thing, because I don't think we should engage in the business of drawing lines between churches and other nonprofits that because a lot of churches are doing serious charitable work as a huge element of their missions. So it's hard to distinguish a church from a non-religious organization that's doing that work. And and that seems problematic. I don't like the idea of taxing all these organizations But I also think maybe that would be fair and maybe that would be a way to drive some advocacy around the tax code in general that would be helpful to everyone. This is a place where my kind of philosophical beliefs about money are at complete odds with my political beliefs about money. Mm. (laughs) Um, From a philosophical perspective, like I don't think I think money is like any other resource and it doesn't really belong to anyone. You just have it during periods of time. And then it kind of goes back into the universe at other periods of time, which I know sounds wacky, but that's just what I believe like from a moral place. But politically, you know, I, I think that taxes are 
extraordinary acts. I, I mean, we should have a tax code. We should have revenue. There are things the government should do, but I tend to go pretty libertarian on that topic. And so when I think about churches, like on the one hand, I think, gosh, we, we should leave that money with them because they're doing good things with it. And on the other, I think, no, we shouldn't be making those kinds of decisions. Like whatever revenue the government needs, we just need to divide it up and, and bring it in from all kinds of sources and not try to use it to manipulate behavior and create incentives and disincentives. So I think it's tough. One of the most interesting comments I've heard about this action and the Johnson Amendment was on The Daily. Michael Barbaro talked with a minister who said that whenever church and state get combined, the institution that suffers is the church, not the state. Mm. The state is so much more powerful than the church. And I thought that was really interesting. And I guess I don't know what fosters the most separation, but to me, I I think it is just not having these organizations be tax exempt, which I think we are very unlikely to see given the direction that things seem to be going. But, you know, there's, they're just layers and layers. I could talk about this for hours because I think there are so many aspects to it, but we don't have hours and hours because (laughs) we need to compliment the other side. No, we don't. You go ahead. I wanted to compliment Helen Giddings, who is a representative in Texas at the state level, not the national level. Representative Giddings has tried three times now to no avail to pass a bill that would prohibit schools from identifying students with balances on their lunch accounts and create a grace period to resolve insufficient balances. And she has been passionately making speeches on the floor. I saw a picture where she had taken a piece of cheese that is kind of what is given to students who haven't paid their balances and said, look, like, why are we doing this to our kids Mm. for mistakes that their parents have made? And school lunches have become kind of a topic of passion for me. So I just, I appreciate her perseverance and passion on this topic. Well, I am complimenting Representative Ross Leitonen of Florida, South Florida. She is retiring after 38 years in public service, which is a testament. So we've talked about her on the show before. She's a transgender child that she came out in support of. But she just wrote in her editorial that basically just because she could keep winning doesn't mean she should. And that like assessing the seasons in your life and deciding what's right for you at that point time personally shouldn't be outweighed by the fact that like you could just keep on being in public service. And so I just thought I liked the way she wrote about it. I thought it was very thoughtful and bravo for being in public service for 38 years, not to mention that she was the first Hispanic woman to serve in the Florida House of Representatives, the Florida Senate, the first Cuban American to serve in the United States House of Representatives, and ultimately the first woman of any background to serve as chair of the regular standing committee of the House. So bravo. It's well served. Happy retirement. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. 
You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash pantsuit. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. This is a special episode with the author of our latest Pantsuit Politics book club pick, Ganesh Sita Raman, The Crisis of the Middle Class Constitution. Welcome. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. Oh, I forgot the subtitle. I like the subtitle, too. Why Economic Inequality Threatens Our Republic. So. Ganesh, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to write this book. I should say we met at Vox Conversations and had a good conversation just to be super cheesy about it. And you said, I'm going to be writing this book. And I said, awesome. And you sent it to me and we made it the book club pick. And I really, really enjoyed the book. And I'm excited to talk to you about it and hear why you wrote it and all that. Yeah. So um, it's it's. It's a great question. You know, I think uh, one of the obvious reasons, if not the most obvious, is we are in this time period where economic inequality is one of, if not the, the most important topic uh, that's been discussed over the last handful of years. Um, and it's something that isn't going away. It's not going away because we've seen the trends in inequality rising over a 30-year period. And so when I left government, uh, I'd been working for uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, and moved back to being a, a law professor. Um, I started thinking about this question of economic inequality and wanted to go back and investigate how people throughout our history, uh, and particularly throughout our constitutional history, had thought about the problem of economic inequality. And what I found is that they actually thought about it a lot. And they thought about it during the founding period and throughout most of our history, and they were very concerned that economic inequality would actually be a threat to our constitutional system, a threat to our republic. Uh, and that was, uh, I thought, um, an extraordinary and interesting finding. And so the book uh, grew out of that. Because you're uniquely qualified. You're a constitutional law professor. And I think it's really great because you're making like a constitutional argument, but you also do lay out such an interesting history of this conversation. And you start that sort of history section of the book um, talking about a 17th century uh, Englishman named James Harrington. And he's really sort of central to this forgotten history. Tell us about him a little bit. Yeah, so in the mid-1600s in England, there's this guy, James Harrington, uh, who's a political thinker. And what James Harrington argues is that the balance of power in politics will inevitably be a function of the balance of wealth in society. He says the balance of property, balance of property in society. And what that basically means is that whatever the distribution of wealth in your society is going to be, that's what the distribution of power in politics is going to look like. And it'll eventually migrate into that. And so his fear is that if you have a society where you only have a small number of wealthy people, you'll end up with some sort of oligarchy um, or an aristocracy. But on the flip side, he argues that if you have wealth distributed across all the people, then you might be able to have what he calls a commonwealth or what we would call a republic or a democracy. Um, and this is really a critical theory 
that he outlines because it spreads. It spreads throughout the uh, Atlantic world. Um, and it comes to the founders and all of the founders, uh, the founding generation, you know, they've, they've read a, quite a bit in the history of political thought. And a lot of them have read Harrington. Uh, and they embrace this idea that power follows property. And they understand that the only way that you can design a republic is if you ensure that you have a relatively equal distribution of wealth. Well, I think that's so interesting. Beth and I were having a conversation on a previous episode where I said, I always tell people I'm a Democrat because I think there's this sort of two, two blame systems. Either you blame the poor for messing up our system or you blame the rich. And I prefer to blame those who actually have access to our power structures, which is usually people with a lot of wealth or property as you make the argument. So, I mean, that appealed to me. I think that definitely makes sense. And what I thought was so interesting is the founders came along. It's not like you start with the founding, but you really lay out the history of how other republics and states were struggling with this constitutional issue of like, how do we protect from an oligarchy? Do we set up class constitutions where the balance of wealth and power is literally written into the the constitution itself and we have bodies that protect against that? Can you, can you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah, so... so- Pretty much for most of the history of the world, economic inequality was a serious problem that people worried a lot about. And they thought that either the rich would oppress the poor or the poor would try to confiscate the wealth of the rich and that the result would just be strife, violence, and revolution. And so the answer to this problem, the way out, was to build class right into the structure of government. So in England, for example, you have a House of Lords for the wealthy, House of Commons for everybody else. In ancient Rome, there's a patrician senate for the wealthy. And there's the tribune of the plebs, the plebeians, the poor, for everybody else. And the idea is that each of these institutions offers both classes in government a check on the other, but also a share and a stake in governing. And this is what will prevent instability. Now, that's how people dealt with this problem throughout throughout history. Uh, and I think what's so striking is that our Constitution, the American Constitution, doesn't have that. We don't have a tribune of the plebs. We don't have a House of Lords that's restricted exclusively to the wealthy. Uh, and the reason why we don't have that is because people in our founding generation looked around and believed that America was relatively equal compared to any other country in the history of the world and any other country in the world at the time. And so that's a striking difference between our Constitution and the governments that came before us. I thought that was so fascinating because I had never really thought that we don't have great check. We have great checks on the other branches of government. We don't have great checks on people outside the system and how much power they can amass and then influence our system. Yeah, you know, we don't have a lot of checks on on that. And, and part of the the challenge, the, the challenge in any society is ensuring that you have checks on the accumulation of power wherever it's found. Mm. And one of the interesting things I think about the progressive era, the period in the Gilded Age in the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, is people were very worried about how industrialization had changed the nature of the American economy, leading to increased inequality, and that this increase in economic inequality was also bleeding into political inequality. And they openly worried that the concentration of economic power in corporations was as much a threat to the republic, to our constitutional system, as the concentration of political power within, say, the hands of a president or the House or the Senate or the judiciary, because you needed to have distributed power in order to really have freedom. Well, and here is what I thought was so interesting, too. So I thought the progressive era, I want to talk about the progressive era for sure, because I feel like it sort of gets left out and so many um, important changes happened and discussions. But up until that point, you do uh, a really great job of arguing that through much of our history, you know, our founding fathers were sort of believed that because we had this broad middle class that we didn't have to worry about concentration of powers. And then through, you know, the first uh, 100 years or 150 years, we still we maintain that through a couple different systems and you talk about the distribution of land in the West and the rise of public education. And can you speak to like how those helped maintain the middle class and, and why that might not be the case now? Yeah. So the big, the big things that were radical about America were first that we had no hereditary aristocracy. We had no feudalism and there was vast land available to the West, as you just mentioned, which meant that 
uh, any white man could become a yeoman farmer, get a plot of land, and have a measure of, of economic independence. So we should talk a little bit more about race and gender, too, in a little bit. But but um, that was the basic idea, is that you'd have this land available. Now, what happened over the course of the 19th century is we shift from being an agrarian society and an artisanal labor society into an industrial era in which work becomes about uh, wages and, and, you know, working in factories through mass production. Uh, it's also the period in which we see urbanization, we see the closing of the frontier, uh, and these are huge changes to our society so that by the late 19th century, by the time of the Gilded Age, it's no longer possible to believe that lands to the West are a safety valve that will allow anybody who feels oppressed in, in say, a factory to just move West and, and become an independent farmer. Uh, the nature of the economy has fundamentally changed, making that story uh, implausible. And so in the progressive era, we have to make changes to try to figure out how to solve that problem. Um, and people really try to attack this in, in two ways. The first is they try to break up the big concentrations of economic power by inventing antitrust law, by pushing forward public utilities regulation. And they also work on the political side to do things like the uh, constitutional amendment for the direct election of senators uh, and the first campaign finance regulations. And so the the people in the progressive era and the populist era really are responding to these big changes in the shift from an agricultural economy to an industrial era economy. Well, and it's so relevant to now, right? I mean, it just seems as I read through that process and just the, the huge societal changes and the huge economic changes, it just seems so relevant. And some of these changes that took place in the progressive era were so huge. Like, I guess I just never really thought about what a big deal it was when they changed to the electing senators and how many people really had to sacrifice power and give up power to do that and make that happen. So how did they, how were, what were some of the strategies that people used during that time to shift the power? Yeah. So, so the, the direct election of senators is one of the most interesting things, I think, because yeah, I just never read anything to, about it. It's so interesting. Yeah. So what it takes to get this constitutional amendment is you have to get the senators to agree first. Uh, and then you have to get the state legislatures to agree. And this is really surprising because the senators who have to agree to this amendment were all selected under the old system, which is the legislators and the state legislatures uh, would pick. And so they wouldn't really want to get rid of it because they were succeeding under the old right. system. And then the state legislators, they all have to give up their power to get to choose senators and, and who wants to give up power, right? So this is a really hard question. And what the populists and then progressives do is they really push at the local level in a grassroots way to get all their elected officials, and these are state house officials, state senate officials, um, to commit to supporting the popular candidate for senate. And they also pass the initiative and referendum during the during the progressive era in a lot of states. And through that, they create, they, they, they have a kind of non-binding referendum on who the people want as the senator. And so with the two things together working in tandem, they basically say to their people, look, we have a litmus test. You're either going to support who the referendum picks for senator or we'll never vote for you. And on those grounds, people eventually said, okay, I'll support the popular view. Uh, and that made it a fait accompli, made it possible to actually change the system that was so deeply entrenched. And, you know, I think that's actually a really clever model in thinking about some of our entrenched problems today. So if you think about campaign finance regulation, you know, it's sort of similar, right? Everybody who's in office right now um, is there in part because we have a campaign finance system that they've been able to navigate and uh, and have succeeded by working within. Um, so changing that system is threatening to them. And so one way that we might be able to make change is by saying, you know, we're not going to vote for you unless you're committed to making change in this system and just make that a, a test of, of, of how we want to order our politics by saying we think any candidate for office needs to be committed to really ending the corruption in our political system. Uh, and I think that would be a way forward. So I think another strategy you talk about during the progressive era that I think seems relevant right now is, like you said, breaking up some of the bigger corporations and the antitrust. And I'm curious if you saw the uh, New York Times editorial, is it time to break up Google and your thoughts on that? Uh, I, 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 
I think I may have read it, but I'm not sure on the particulars of that. Of that, but I, you know, one of the things I think is happening right now is there's a huge resurgence in interest in antitrust mm-hmm. uh, because we've seen the same kind of concentration of economic power uh, that we saw about 100 years ago during the progressive era. Um, right now, we live in an era of consolidation in almost every sector of the economy. There's a very small number of companies that run uh, the show and that have uh, pretty much the, the total of the market share. Um, and what this means is it means higher prices for consumers. It means worse service for consumers. But it also means that these companies have economic power over others in the field, meaning that it's harder for small businesses to get started and compete with them. It means it's harder for their suppliers and the companies they work with. Um, but they also have a lot of political power because they have so much money, they can spend it on lobbying, they can spend it on influencing government. And that's a serious problem. And I think right now what you're seeing is people saying that this is a real problem today and that we need to bring back antitrust and we've got to think about how it works in the modern world. Um, and that's going to mean not just applying it to some of the companies that we hear about, you know, a little bit more often, like uh, cable companies, mm-hmm. um, but it may also mean looking at Internet platforms as well. Well, and another thing that I learned a lot during the history of your book is sort of the the changing ideas about liberty and work, in particular wage labor. Uh, so I read a really interesting write of about two other books uh, called The United States of Work and the New Republic. And one of the books was Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It by Elizabeth Anderson. And I totally started thinking so much about the intersections of those conversations because I guess I just, I, for so long, I didn't realize that wage labor was seen as not, you know, it wasn't slavery, but it was a form of servitude. Like it was not, it was not, you weren't trying to get wage labor. Thomas Jefferson didn't think wage labor was this great freedom that everybody should exercise. Like you were seen as still not um, being free and owning your own life in a way. And then after abolition and you talk about sort of the laissez-faire Supreme Court and how that was like the, uh, then they shifted dramatically. It was like, no, well now freedom to work is you should be able to work as hard as you want. And if you want to, you know, work way beyond the levels like these, you know, sort of human extremes, you should be free to, because it's about freedom. And it feels like to me, like we're, we're shifting again around the ideas of, wages and work and salaries and liberty and freedom and what really what does that mean and what do we want as a society and what is sort of our gold standard of being able to be free and provide for your family and I was just wondering what you thought about that yeah so one of the really interesting things is how these ideas have changed over time and you know early in in American history uh, people believed in being economically independent mm-hmm and the problem with wages is you were actually economically dependent, dependent right. on somebody else. And you're not really independent in, in a pure sense is how they thought about it. And so one of the concerns was that wage labor, you know, they actually say this, in, in and then I quote people in the book saying this, uh, that they thought that wage labor was a form of slavery. Some people called it wage slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the analogy was that industrial workers didn't have a lot of power. Now, obviously, there were huge differences between uh, actual slavery and, and wage work in, in factories. And, and we can't really compare those two things. But people at the time saw this as a spectrum and were very concerned that wage labor would be a form of unfreedom because you were so bound to the person that you worked for, for everything in your livelihood, that you weren't really independent of them. And that's an idea that disappears over time. We no longer talk like that, think like that, believe that. But it's a concern because what what it shows is that there is something interesting about the relationship that we have with with our employers. And, you know, when we talk about it today, I think the place where it comes up most frequently um, is in debates over health care. And, you know, when, when we talk about health care, a lot of people get their health care from their employer. And one thing economists say is that this creates what they call job lock, which means that you don't really feel free to quit your job and, say, start a new business or maybe even, you know, go strike out on your own um, because you need all the benefits that come from your employer, namely health care. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can't just quit and you have to have, unless you have health care. And so one of the arguments for uh, Obamacare or a public option or single payer or any broader sense of health care um, is that it may un- undo this problem of job lock and create people who are more independent, separate from their employers, 
and so therefore have more freedom, the ability to actually act in a society how they want to. Um, and so I think this is a really important part about the link between economics and freedom. You know, we often hear from people in politics that freedom is just about the government staying out of your way. Um, but I think one of the rich conceptions of freedom that people throughout our history had was freedom uh, to do things themselves and freedom from private power. Yeah, And, absolutely. you know, the question we have to ask is, are you really free if you have $50,000 in student loan debt? Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure you don't feel free. You I don't feel, feel pretty free. Constrained. I don't feel free for you sure. Feel, you feel constrained, right, exactly. And so economic independence and being part of the middle class is partly about freedom uh, as well. It's not just about economic well-being or um, or being able to, you know, buy a new iPhone or something like that. It's about freedom. Well, and I, the, another part of the book that I think was so interesting, and it wasn't just about sort of wealth is power, but really the power um, that comes along with sort of a technocratic approach or, or a meritocracy in a system like that. And one of my favorite parts is where you say, a metrocratic system where they believe because they succeed in a fair competitive system, they are inherently better than those who did not succeed. You talk about like some thinkers who were very concerned about that. And Beth and I had a recent conversation about the book Shattered, the Hillary Clinton campaign write-up, and how that somebody wrote like it was an indictment of the political elites in D.C. who just basically think of like appealing to the voters as a chore. And I lived in Washington, D.C., and I feel like this attitude of you know, even if you're not the super wealthy, if you succeeded to the, you know, upper classes based on object, you know, objective ideas about your own merit, then it does. It becomes like you just deserve to be there. And so it's sort of self-perpetuating in a way, because then we get this very, like you said, technocratic approach. It's just it's changes on the margin. And there's no big structural changes because the structure worked because, hey, why do we need big structural changes? The system worked. I worked hard. I'm better. That's why I'm here. And how those things sort of work in tandem and how they may or may not have given us Donald Trump. (laughs) So, yeah, well, so so one of the one of the real challenges, as you said, is, you know, what, what happens and what people have been worried about throughout history is that there's a vicious cycle that emerges um, between the people who become wealthy, they're gaining political power, uh, and then that cycle kind of reinforcing each other. So, so, so here's how it works. Um, as people become more unequal, they start to think that they are better because they succeeded. Right. Um, and they put some moral effort behind this. And this isn't to say people don't work hard and succeed in part based on their merits. That's obviously true that they do. Um, but we also have to acknowledge that there's a lot of luck involved, that a lot of people help you along the way. You have parents, you have teachers, you have members of your community that provide support for you. Um, so everybody, all of us who succeeded have, have been able to be successful because of a lot of people who've helped us along the way. Uh, and, but if you become successful, you start, a lot of people start forgetting about that part of it and just thinking that they did it all by themselves without the support of others. And when that happens, you start to think you're better than other people, um, that you deserve it, and that maybe you deserve to rule and govern uh, instead of other people because you're clearly better. Uh, the problem then is that your views actually start changing when you become wealthier too because you now don't believe in the same kind of policies that are going to support everyone. You believe in policies that are going to support your own interests. And so what you have are wealthy people getting more involved in politics, including running for office, um, but systematically holding different views than what would be good for the for the common good, what's in our national interest. Um, and so, for example, wealthy people uh, are less interested in public school and more interested in private schools. Um, less uh, wealthier people less interested in regulating Wall Street. Uh, and those are the kinds of things that have uh, support in the general population, but less so at the, at the higher end. And as a result, then, you know, you influence politics. The politics supports your your wealth, and you get wealthier. And then you use that money to influence politics some more, and this becomes this kind of vicious cycle. You know, one commentator's called it a doom loop of oligarchy. Um, and, and I think that's a real problem for us. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. 
Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze. And its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Well, and I, I, you know, at one point you discuss in the book that partisan gridlock can be a good thing because it makes it hard for big changes to benefit the wealthy to happen. But I just wonder in our current um, situation with such bad partisan gridlock, how are we ever going to move past that sort of technocratic approach and really um, make big institutional changes, which you and I talked about at Vox and Beth went to Vox this year. They talked about it again there. And her and I have had lots of conversations about like, I'm sure you remember Ezra saying at the end of our Vox, like our institutions are not capable. They have not adapted to, ch- to face the, our current problems. And so if partisan gridlock is, is good because it protects us from big, you know, structural changes, but we need structural changes, big structural changes, then what do we do? So I think the answer to this is is is, pre, is, is, is challenging, but uh, it's easily said at least, which is throughout our history, the way we've gotten big changes has been two things. First, we've had people in office who've wanted to make reforms. That doesn't mean it's everybody in office, but we've had some people in office who've wanted to make reforms and who've been willing to take on the fight in Washington. But the second thing that we've had is we've had massive movements of people across the country, grassroots movements of people who mobilized, and not just for one march, not just for one letter or call to their uh, congressman or senator, but on a sustained basis, day in, day out, month in, month out, year in, year out, for a long period of time in order to make change. And and that's important for, for uh, exactly what you said. Our system is designed to make big changes difficult so that we don't have these big swings in policy anytime some new party takes office. But that means when we need to make big structural changes, the people, all of us, really need to be involved 
in shaping our destiny and shaping our future. Um, and I think that's actually the way it should be. And the reason why is this is a democracy. And that means we all get to govern. And we need to take the responsibility and we need to take charge for our future. Um, and we do that by getting involved in the political process and by staying involved in order to force change. Uh, and so I think that's what it's going to take for us. It's going to take leadership that wants to do it, and it's going to take all of us forcing them to do it. Mm. Well, and you do give a, a shout-out, which Beth gets a lot of flack for being um, a sort of progressive conservative on our show, but you think there's a definite role for somebody like that in this in this path towards change. I think there's a, I think there's certainly a, a role for progressive conservatives. I know it sounds like an oxymoron, but but <laughs> here's the basic idea. You know, conservatives want to conserve the past in the most traditional sense, not kind of ideologically conservative, but true conservatives want to conserve the past. Um, but they also recognize that in order to preserve what was best about the past, you have to make incremental reforms to adapt to a changing society and a changing future. Uh, and so, you know, the, the con- British conservative uh, Quentin Hogg said, uh, if you know, if you don't give the people social reform, they give you social revolution. Mm. Uh, and that's the idea. The conservative idea is we don't want revolution. And so we'll take moderate reforms. And I think there's a real opportunity for today's modern Republican Party uh, to go back and really embrace this notion of of the kind of progressive conservative uh, who who will take on moderate reforms in order to really improve the well-being of people in this country uh, and forestall the kind of more radical changes and fracturing of our society. Um, so far, it doesn't seem like we've seen too much of that, uh, but but I'm hopeful that um, over time maybe we'll get an emergence of of that kind of wing of the Republican Party as well. So I'm not sure how far um, into writing the book were you when uh, sort of the rise of Donald Trump happened? Well, most of the book was finished before uh, before all of that, and in fact, the you know the whole book was finished well before the election. So um, so it, uh, often it really happened. Um, you know, as as the book was pretty much finished. Man, it doesn't read uh, like which that. Which made which made for some interesting, uh, which made for an interesting time in writing it. Yeah. Uh, at the end and doing the and doing the edits because in some ways, um, as you noticed probably when you read through it, uh, a lot of the themes emerged in the 2016 campaign. Yeah. Uh, that I talked about in the book, the idea of the rigged system that we live in, uh, the wealthy having control of it, um, people playing off of uh, fears of, of people's uh, economic insecurity in order to gain political power. This was a big theme in a lot of parts of our politics last year. Well, and here's my question. As scary and um, frustrating as sort of this anti-globalism, nationalist uh, trend that we're seeing here and in Britain and in parts of Europe, I wonder, though, if... There, I mean, I don't really want to call it, I don't want to say there's a silver lining to any sort of nationalism, but this sort of anti-globalism and this feeling of I, the, the economy is leaving me behind isn't indicative of the fact that people are sort of um, catching on or subscribing to um, the, the overall concerns you lay out in the book or the concerns that people had during the progressive era. It does seem like a shift to me. Like, no, it doesn't feel like um, the government is all um, sort of like the Reagan era where the government was the biggest boogeyman. It seems that seems like that is shifting. And especially within the Republican Party, concerns are becoming more economic. And while I wish they were, you know, not channeled towards undocumented workers it i mean it does seem like there is a shift so l- let me put it a different way which hopefully will get uh will, will make you feel less uncomfortable uh in you know where you started about nationalism which is in the 2016 election whether you were a supporter of bernie sanders or donald trump one thing that was in common on both those sides on the left and on the right was an understanding that our system was fundamentally broken mm-hmm. and that it's broken fundamentally in an economic way right. and that the structures of our economy have not been working for ordinary people the way they're supposed to. Now, that's common across the political spectrum, the diagnosis of the problem, uh, or at least one part of the diagnosis of the problem. What to do and exactly what the causes are is a little, uh, there's a lot more divergence over. But the fact that a lot of people share this core intuition, I think, is actually a promising thing. Yeah, I do too. That, that's, the big, that's the beginning of the origins of how we get change um, mm-hmm. because we have to start with the recognition that we need to do something 
Uh, and now we have to figure out how to do it and what kind of reforms we can make. And I think, you know, for, for anyone out there who wants to support and preserve the idea of being an open and free society uh, that's connected to others, that embraces difference and diversity, part of what we have to do is not just uh, support that in kind of a nostalgic stand-pat way, but you can only support that by reform. Right. Because you have to recognize that our system doesn't include everybody, doesn't work well for everybody, and it's the reforms that are going to preserve it, expand it, and uh, keep it working in the future. Um, and that's just the, the nature of society. Is times always change, and we have to change with them. Well, and it's almost like, you know, I know people that voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary and Donald Trump in the general, which is bananas to me, but, you know, in the in the context of this conversation, I think makes sense. And if we could, like you said, shift people's idea about what happens next after we all acknowledge there's a problem from the election of one person who's going to fix it all or sort of emotional reactions to other groups and into if we could channel that into real, you know, progressive reforms, I think we'd be so much better off. Because, I, I mean, I think everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people, like you said, are really um, coming around to the idea that there is um, economic equality and that the system doesn't work great for everybody. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's a serious, um, I think it's a serious problem that we do have this sense of that in the country. And that's, and that's where we need to look forward is we need to think about how can we actually make the kind of reforms that are going to fix our political system so that it's less uh, controlled by money? And how can we make the kind of economic reforms to ensure that the, uh, that the economy works for everybody? Right. Well, that's a good ending note. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. This has been fun. And we encourage everybody, if you haven't already read it for the book club, there's still time because we gave everybody a little bit of an extension. It's The Crisis of the Middle Class Constitution, Why Economic Inequality Threatens Our Republic. So what's on your mind, Beth? Well, we, I think, both watched Get Me Roger Stone, and I wanted to talk about that a little bit. I did watch it. (laughs) So it's interesting, right? I mean, here's a guy who has been lurking around for a couple of years in the public view, and I thought it was fascinating that he was like, yep, I'm an agent of disinformation. Yep, I like being famous better than anything on earth. I don't care what I'm famous for. I don't care mm. to be infamous. Like, he's just so blatantly amoral that yeah. I thought it was interesting to watch. I mean, he's what we call in the South a character. He but is the a character. Part, towards the end where he's like with Alex Jones and they're like walking around with um, women who in the past have accused Bill Clinton of sexual assault and just so gross and foul And now, but now it's like, I'm so, I'm not interested in what he has to say, but he does seem to be some like sorts, some sort of like predictor. Like now he's sort of, he's, he's firing up this idea that, um, they're going to either Donald Trump is going to use Alzheimer's as a defense or people are going to claim he has dementia and all this stuff. And I'm like, so paranoid about everything he needs to say. I don't even want to care what Roger Stone says. Like what a crazy man. It's a window into this president, though, and a window into aspects of the media and and a window into, I think, how a lot of people maybe process fame. So I thought it was interesting. I mean, I I definitely thought it was worth watching. Well, I just started The Keepers, which is about an unsolved murder of a nun in Baltimore in the 1960s that I'm probably going to want to talk about next week. But I just wanted to alert our listeners so everybody else can watch it and we can all talk about it on Facebook. But what I really want to talk about is my thermostat. So I have a Nest and I discovered the eco setting, which um, doesn't turn the heat or air conditioning on unless it's below 62 or over 82. And I'm loving it. And my husband outed me on Facebook. He said he had Stockholm syndrome because it went to 83 and turned on and he turned it off. So he didn't have to close all the windows. <laughs> People have passionate opinions about their thermostat level. Passionate. We have a nest as well. And I really like it. We have not done the eco setting. My husband really like is it. one of those passionate folks about temperature. 
Well, it's just like, you know, I usually am too. I am particular, but I'm cold nature, so I'm more passionate about the heat, but I was leaving it off on 62 and it was getting very cold. I just think in the summer, I don't really think it's good for you to go from like 90 degrees outside to 65 inside. It's, I feel like the biggest, worst, awful American when I'm like sitting in my house under a blanket and it's like a hundred degrees outside. And I really like, like, we go outside a lot more because when it gets stuffy, it's like, it's way cooler outside. So we've been spending more evenings outside. And I love when the house cools down. Like, we just leave the windows open all night and the house cools down overnight. Like, I love waking up in the morning and I don't feel cold all the time. I'm digging it so far. I'm really digging it. I'm having this little bit of crisis about how wired my house is because we have Alexa's pretty much everywhere. And we have the nest and we have some other little cameras and things and it all works phenomenally. And I love it. And I'm amazed by everything that can happen in my house and how easy it is to do everything. And then I have these moments where I think, oh, there are so many downsides of the way that we're living. Mm. We have a, this is not because it's wired, but we have a, um, microwave that makes the weirdest sound and always puts me in a very paranoid state about our house generally because I'm pretty sure the Russians are using it to listen to me. I don't know why I'm not saying anything interesting, but I mean, it makes it like it. it's my microwave sounds like a computer processor when it's not, it's not microwaving anything. It's just sitting over there in the corner, not being used. And it starts making this sound like a hard drive. It's so weird. Well, Kellyanne did warn us about this microwave. I'm just telling you. So I'm just... I am loving the nest right now because the eco setting, even though the funny thing is, it's like, it's really not the wired aspect. You know, the nest is supposed to know when you leave and when you come back and learn your schedule. But really, I like the eco better because it just takes all the guesswork out of it. Like, it's just, it's getting me those little green leaves you get when for your eco setting that I really love. And I can look on my app and watch no usage, no usage, no usage, just pile up day after day. Loving it. Loving it. Well, that's certainly economical. too. Mm -hmm. Oh, my power bill last month. Oh, my God. You don't even know. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsy Politics. We will be back with you on Friday for the briefcase. You can go to patreon.com slash pantsypolitics to support us. Every week in our subscriber-only newsletter, I've been writing a little reflection on the previous episode. And so if you want to get that, you can click on over there to join as well as signing up to be sure that you get our bonus episode this month. We will talk with you on Friday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. 